News Power Hour. Well, a warm welcome to you. This is the 17th of November, and this is your Hour of Power. A very special program for you tonight. We like to do this kind of thing, to have an in-depth interview on important subjects. You might have heard uh, a couple of, well, last week we were talking to Ali Baha, Adrian Kaper, and Clive Eckstein, who were involved in that historic game that was on the 11th of November, 1991, when South Africa re-entered sport. We've got a similarly important milestone to talk about today, Discovery which is by far the biggest medical aid in South Africa, has got lots of information of its members. 1.2 million of its members have been vaccinated. And in South Africa, we have the situation where, unlike, say, in the UK, where they have much higher vaccination rates, they are all back at their football games and uh, going back to pubs and doing things pretty much normally now in their economy as they did pre-COVID. In South Africa, we can't do that yet. Indeed, there's still big questions over a fourth wave coming to this country in December. What Discovery have done is taken those 1.2 million people who've been vaccinated, and there's roughly another 1.2 million people who are their members who haven't been vaccinated. So this is a massive data set, and they've been able to then have a look at the difference between vaccinations and non-vaccinations, how many people have been getting COVID because if you're a Discovery Health member, you and you get COVID, uh, you register positive, then it actually registers on the system. And they've been able to track this all the way down to the 14,000 people within Discovery's medical aid who've actually died as a direct result of COVID. I had a long discussion today with Ryan Noach about the detailed results that came out of that research. And it is some of the best research in the world. What is interesting is it's completely aligned with what we heard about from the UK, uh, Emil Stipp, who's Discovery's chief actuary, had a look at those numbers as well in the UK. A couple of months ago, we had that interview. They have the national health in, uh, system there, and as a consequence of that, they've also got lots of data. So the data now is pretty conclusive, and that's what Ryan Noach is talking to us about later in the program. There's a whole lot of debates and arguments. Nadia, we've had on Biz News, as we do, we we give both sides of the story. We've had people who say they know people who have died after being vaccinated, or they know people who have uh, been sick after being vaccinated. And I guess there's a lot of this anecdotal evidence or uh, discussions. But when I asked the people who've told me this, they could never name the individuals. So I tried to get to the bottom of this with Discovery, with Ryan, and said, well, on those 1.2 million who've been vaccinated, how many of them died straight after the vaccination? And the result was not one. It's very interesting data. Either the Discovery guys are a hell of a lot uh, healthier, or there's information that we're being fed that isn't entirely new. I learned a heck of a lot, and I'm sure that listening a bit later, uh, the rest of us will. Nadia, you've been following this debate, though, very closely. I have. There are such compelling arguments on both sides. From where I'm sitting, I think it's important to keep an open mind. So the whole topic of mandatory vaccination is still sort of really, I think, a thorn in many people's side and for fair reasons. But it is, it can't go hand in hand with vaccination. So I think this is where a lot of the trouble comes in, where people speak up against mandatory vaccination when, in fact, there's nothing against vaccination. It's just... The Don't mandatary aspect me. thereof. Exactly. Don't force me to stop smoking because I want to kill myself with cigarette if I want to. Justin, you and if so, then, me. you know, by all means. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever smoked, Justin? Even at school in, in, uh, in uh, bishops, uh, in the toilets or behind the classrooms? No comment, Alec. <laughs> <laughs> or at the pig and whistle when you've had uh, maybe a, a good celebration? No Again, Alec, no comment. What I will say, the data does seem to be unequivocal. I think it's important with these kind of things and also um, in the investment field to sort of follow the facts, follow the data, follow the probabilities. Um, I agree that mandatory vaccination um, is, is still an issue. People shouldn't be forced to be vaccinated. However, the data shows that if you are vaccinated, 
you are far more likely um, to A, not catch COVID. And if you do catch COVID, um, you, you, you won't fall under or get to severe illness. Um, so the data is unequivocal in that sense. And it certainly is. Of course, I'm, I'm uh, pushing out my stomach because, uh, sorry, my chest, um, because I've been vaccinated, both double vaccinated and had COVID. And according to Ryan Noach, the group, the uh, cohort that are in that field have got 98% less chance of dying than people who are unvaccinated. So you kind of, it's, it's, it's called the super hybrid uh, uh, benefits or whatever it might be. Whereas if you've just had COVID, you still have only, uh, you're only 84% better off than those people who are unvaccinated. So the, I, I'm a great believer in data. I'm a great believer as well, Nadia, that you, you got to keep an open mind on all of this. I'm also a great believer that you cannot force people to do something that even if they are wrong in their thought processes, that they, you can't force them to do it because they just won't do it. One must go with, with, uh, with the data, go with the science, show exactly what the information is. And I'm, I'm really uh, happy that Discovery has done all this work. 30 actuaries um, have, have been working on this pretty much full time pull in all this, all these data points and then to uh, compile them for us. So it's a fascinating interview coming up a little later. But there's, an, there's one before that that's just as good. We had Tongot uh, in our business share portfolio. And after the KZN riots, we got out because a big part of Tongot is the property portfolio in KZN. Who the heck wants to buy property, long-term investment, when you're in a province that is uh, so unstable as we saw in the July riots. But there was big breaking news coming through on that uh, company today, Justin. Huge news, Alec. Uh, they've proposed a 4 billion rands rights issue. To put that into perspective, the company currently has a market value of 1 billion. So it is requesting equity capital of four times the value of the business. The reason that this has come about, um, as Chris Logan points out to me in his interview, operational mishaps, uh, the years of fraudulent activity amongst management. As you say, they do have valuable land on their balance sheets that's valued at billions and billions of rands, but there's just simply no buyer. So they've had to request money from their shareholders. Yeah, and that land is only worth what someone will be prepared to pay. So although it's prime property in Mklanga Rocks, who's building a factory in Mklanga Rocks or uh, indeed a block of flats or anything like that along the whole Natal KZN North Coast? Uh, it's former sugar fields that they were, it was a wonderful boost to the business because of that value. And that really was our view. What happened to the share price today as a result of this, this news? The share price initially plummeted 50%, uh, uh, half the value of the company. It has since rallied and is steadied around 25% lower. But the, the rights issue will be done at a hugely dilutive, discounted value to its current share price, just due to the sheer size of it. As Stuart Lohman, our colleague, said in the, uh, on the, when we heard the news this morning, when you, you let us know in the editorial meeting, Justin, he said there's, as Warren Buffett says, there's never only one cockroach in the kitchen. And I'm afraid Tongot's got quite a few cockroaches at the moment. Rightrock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets means change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. And let's kick off now in our market report first with Nadia Swart. Coalition talks between political parties have broken down with the deadline for forming councils in Hung municipalities looming. Action SA leader Herman Mashaba has confirmed that parties have rejected proposals from the DA, where the latter seeks to control major metros like Trane and Johannesburg. Mashaba reportedly said, we made it clear to the DA, please don't come out with the mentality of being a big party. There is no big party here. None of us has got a majority. The DA wants control of both metros, believing that the largest coalition partner should get the mayoral position. The DA says it still has faith in the talks. Meanwhile, talks between the EFF and ANC have collapsed completely with the former not entertaining any more negotiations with the ruling party. EFF leader Julius Malema said the ANC had not been able to agree to even the simplest of terms and that the EFF was instead focusing on Action SA. 
Deputy Finance Minister David Masondo says that the government should steer away from a blanket ban on talks of getting the private sector involved with struggling state-run companies, adding that getting private groups involved would boost competition and efficiency where the state has failed. He highlighted the inefficiencies of state-run power supply through ESCOM and freight through Transnet as examples where private sector involvement would boost reliability and reduce costs for end customers. However, he stressed that the subject needs more research and clear guidelines of how this would work. Civil society group AfriForum has sent a legal letter of demand to Cooperative Governance and Traditional Affairs Minister Nkosazana Dlamini-Zuma, stating that the continued implementation of national curfews as part of the state of disaster is irrational and unjustified. In the letter to the minister, AfriForum has requested written reasons why they are curfews, as well as supporting evidence that curfews are an effective precautionary measure, as well as the implementation of national curfews to cease with immediate effect. AfriForum has requested an urgent response by close of business this Friday, the 19th of November. And now it's back to Justin for the market report. Thanks, Nods. The JSE All Share Index was up near the 71,300 level. In the currency markets, the rand was weaker against all the major currencies. 15 rand 48 cents to the dollar, 20 rand 83 cents to the pound, and 17 rand 52 cents to the euro. Gold is up at $1,862 an ounce. A Kruger rand will cost you around 30,000 rand. Brent crude is lower at $81 a barrel, and Bitcoin is up, trading at around 940,000 rand per coin. In the financial news, scandal riven. Tongat Hewlett's market value almost halved on Wednesday after it said it may tap shareholders for as much as 4 billion rand to tackle its crippling debt pile. The sugar producer, which was valued at 1.3 billion rand on the JSE at Tuesday's close, has reached an agreement with Mauritius-based investment holding company Magister, which has offered to spend as much as 2 billion rand to underwrite the offer. Tongat shares fell as much as 43% to 5 rand 50 before pairing the losses to trade at 7 rand 50 in the early afternoon. The amount of capital to be raised and the pricing of the, offer, of the rights offer is yet to be determined, but is expected to be conducted in the first three months of 2022, pending approval from shareholders and lenders, the group said. This daily market report was made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Today is Wednesday, November 17th, and this is your FT News Briefing. Presidents Joe Biden and Xi Jinping agreed to hold talks to ease tensions over security issues. The Kremlin-based Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline into Europe has stumbled over German bureaucracy, and an unusual court trial in the Vatican resumes today. One of the defendants is a cardinal. He's the cardinal. He's the first cardinal to go on trial for a crime like this, you know, in over 300 years. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need The presidents of the U.S. and China have agreed to hold talks aimed at reducing nuclear tensions. China had been refusing to hold nuclear talks, partly because the U.S. has a much larger weapons arsenal. The breakthrough came during Monday night's virtual summit between Joe Biden and China's Xi Jinping. And it comes amid a broader backdrop of rising anxiety in the U.S. over China's expanding nuclear arsenal. Beijing recently tested a nuclear-capable hypersonic weapon. U.S.-China relations are at their lowest point since the two countries normalized diplomatic ties in 1979. Germany yesterday suspended certification for the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. That's the Kremlin-backed project that would deliver gas from Russia to Germany and elsewhere in Europe and avoid pipelines through Ukraine. The move came as Europe struggles with an energy crisis, and the move also caused gas prices to rise even further on Tuesday. Here's the FT's Berlin correspondent, Erica Solomon, on why the German energy regulator made the move. So on the face of it, this is actually a bit of German bureaucracy, more than necessarily a big geopolitical statement. But according to Germany's energy regulator, the reason that they have done this is because Nord Stream 2, in the past few weeks, has changed the way that they are applying for certification to run this pipeline from Russia to Germany. And therefore, they're saying, okay, well, you're changing the system. Now we need to run you through a new accreditation process, get your paperwork in order and come back to us. 
But we should remind listeners that this pipeline is very politically sensitive. Erica, can you remind us of the politics here? So the Nord Stream 2 pipeline is actually a second pipeline that is going to run from Russia to Germany supplying gas to Europe. The problem is, is that a lot of countries in Europe, particularly Central or Eastern European countries, and most particularly countries like Ukraine and Poland, feel that this is actually a more of a geopolitical move than a business move. And they believe that the gas pipeline is intended to cut Ukraine out of its traditional role as a, as a transit country and could be used then to politically pressure Ukraine, which obviously is in a very sensitive situation because parts of Ukraine are occupied by Russian forces. So this is all a very extremely sensitive situation. And it is now this particular moment is coming as there are increasing concerns over Russian troop movements uh, around Ukraine. So the whole timing couldn't be worse, really. That said, we're not actually sure that that's the reason that the suspension happened. And when or or if this current suspension is resolved, is the pipeline good to go or are there any other hiccups or hurdles that could appear on the horizon? The issue with Nord Stream 2 is that Europe has uh, basically like laws that they call unbundling laws, and that is to prevent a monopoly. Right now, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline is effectively run by Gazprom, which is in itself a Kremlin sort of controlled company. So if Nord Stream 2 was to run it was as it was originally planned, it would basically violate new European anti-monopoly laws for gas pipelines. Nord Stream 2 has been asked to what they call unbundle the system so that there will be a different operator of the pipeline, a different owner of the pipeline, and so on. But Nord Stream 2 doesn't want to do that. Instead, what they said they're going to do is for the last portion of this pipeline, the part that runs through Germany, they are going to create a subsidiary, which will be German. And therefore, it's ostensibly it shouldn't have to be subject to unbundling laws. There are a lot of questions as to whether that works legally. So what this effectively means is that we're looking at an almost inevitable move to the European Court of Justice at some point. There will be a country in the European bloc that says, this is not legal, we're taking you to court. And then we find out whether or not Nord Stream 2's interpretation will be seen as valid by the courts. Erica Solomon is the FT's Berlin correspondent. Today in a court inside the Vatican, a high-stakes criminal trial is set to resume. The case revolves around Vatican officials' investments in a luxury property in London using hundreds of millions of euros intended for the poor. To talk about the story and what's at stake, I'm joined by our Rome correspondent, Miles Johnson. Hi, Miles. Hi. So, first of all, who, who did what and how did donations intended as relief for the poor end up invested in a luxury property development in London? This is really a labyrinthine story. It's very complicated and very, very contested. But broadly speaking, there was a unit of the Vatican, which is called the Secretariat of State, which is a sort of central administration office. And each year... In the, uh, there is a day where Catholics around the world make a donation to the Catholic Church to basically support the works of the church and people who are most in need. That collection is called Peter's Pence. And this money was under the sort of authority of this unit called the Secretariat of State. And really, this investigation focuses on the financial investments that that unit made with this money. And... In addition to the allegations that funds were misused, the Vatican also lost money on this investment. How could that happen when London property prices have have soared in recent years? That is a very good question. There are multiple different versions of events. There are multiple different protagonists who sort of played different roles in those investments. Um, You know, the Vatican prosecutors allege that the, the Holy See was defrauded, and that's how they lost money. Whereas other participants argue that the Vatican made multiple mistakes in the way it handled its investments. So we just don't know at this point, and we'll have to sort of wait and see what the trial delivers in terms of being able to answer that question. Now, from a reputational standpoint, Miles, what does this mean for the Pope and the Vatican and the Catholic Church? 
Pope Francis has been seen as a reforming and to a certain extent an outsider pope. He is someone who was you know, brought in to make some changes, important changes uh, to the way the Vatican had been run. And a really key part of those changes has been the management of the Vatican's finances. And so Pope Francis it has a lot of sort of political capital invested in the idea that he is going to reform those finances, bring transparency, bring good governance to the way in which these assets are being um, managed. And so what the outcome of all of this is will be quite important for his reputation as a reformer. So really, what are the possible outcomes here? At this point, it's just really too early to say how it's going to play out. Obviously, the highest profile defendant is Cardinal Betu, who was one of the most powerful men in the Vatican, a very close ally in some ways of Pope Francis, effectively sort of the Pope's chief of staff. He denies any wrongdoing. You know, he says that he's committed no crime at all. He's always acted in the interests of the church and always managed responsibly any you know assets which have come under his authority. You know, and I think what happens to him will be the deciding factor in this trial. You know, he's the highest profile person by far. You know, he's the cardinal. He's the first cardinal to go on trial for a crime like this, you know, in over 300 years. What happens to him will sort of, I I think, decide the outcome of how people see this trial as having an effect on the church overall. Miles Johnson is the FT's Rome correspondent. Thanks, Miles. Thank you. Before we go, remember a few weeks ago we told you about Floki Inu? That's the new crypto coin that was the subject of a big marketing blitz on London's underground. The coin was inspired by Elon Musk's dog named Floki. Well, UK regulators are now investigating the ad campaign. This comes as London's mayor is under pressure to crack down on crypto advertising on public transport. A Floki spokesperson said its ads complied with all laws and regulations. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. How does business empower our nation? By bringing produce to our tables, giving us technology that connects us, hospitals that care for us, and the tools that shape our cities. And by backing the next generation of business owners. That's why South Africa banks on business. Business banks on us. Standard Bank. It can be. Standard Bank is an authorized financial services and registered credit provider. T's and C's apply. I'm Justin Roberts of Business News, and with me to discuss Tongot's rights issue is Opportune Investments founder Chris Logan. Tongot shares were close to 50% lower at one point today, now around the 25% mark. On a market cap of around 1 billion rand, this rights issue is big. Before we get into that, Chris, how exactly did Tongot find themselves in this position? Thanks, Justin. Years and years of mismanagement, wholesale mismanagement, uh, which... The executive then tried to cover up with accounting falsification and fraud. Um, the mismanagement included capital misallocation. For instance, they spent something like 11 billion rand on sugar assets, sold off a whole, whole lot of prime property, coastal property, to finance some of that, and incurred debt. And um, a lot of the capital that they spent turned out to be almost worthless. So it was wholesale mismanagement. And the fraud was something like seven years. And um, when the fraud was actually eventually uncovered, the company went from having something like 11 billion of equity to negative equity, technically insolvent. So it was a real mess. They said that the rights issue could be as much as 4 billion rand. They said... 2 billion has been underwritten. Their market cap is only 1 billion rand. If I own 100,000 rands worth of Tongat stock, how much am I going to be expected as a shareholder to cough up to keep my pro rata shareholding in the business? 
Yeah, well, the terms have still got to be announced, you know, what price they're going to pitch it at. Um, and there's quite a lot of uh, guesswork, although the business is still technically got no uh, negative equity, they have stated that the fair value of the assets is greater than the value of the liabilities, meaning that some of the assets are understated. Um, so that's the one thing. Um, there also is an undisclosed asset or what I would call a contingent asset. They've got a claim outstanding against Deloitte for signing off on seven years of falsified accounts, which I think could be quite big. Um, so there's a lot of guesswork. Um, obviously, what the rights issue will do will be to remove the financial risk that this thing goes belly up. When a rights issue is as dilutive as this will be, what price around do you expect the rights issue to be issued at? I remember last year with City Lodge, there was a similar kind of situation, massive rights issue, and the rights issue was issued at around an 80% discount to its current share price. Are you expecting a similar theme with Tongart? I don't know about 80. I mean, so the market's currently at 701. You know, they obviously said there's going to be a discount. If I had to guess, I'd guess it's something like potentially um, four rand, just as a pure guess. But, you know, they, they need to really provide more clarity on on the, the underlying fair value of the assets and prospects. The lion's share of Tongat's asset base is land, as you mentioned, which is valued at billions of rands or at least on their balance sheet. There were announcements relating to talks on the sale of a portion of the land earlier on in the year. I'm assuming these talks have come to a standstill. Would a rights issue have been able to be avoided if a deal would have managed to take place? There was probably always going to needed to be probably some capital raise unless they were able to sell some of their big strategic assets or, or, or raise um, equity against some of their big strategic assets, like their sugar mills, which they haven't been able to do. And um, realize they've gone through the worst of times on the land side because of COVID and all the rest. So, and then there was one other thing which really hurt them, which was unexpected, was they lost 25,000 tons of sugar on, um, on the refining side, which was equated to hundreds and hundreds of millions of rand. So they've had a, a lot of things go wrong of the lo over the last year or two, which has complicated it. Um, and I guess when you inherit a, dis a desperate situation like this, you, things are going to go wrong, you know, where the underlying company has been poorly managed and um, you're under tremendous pressure. Chris, two questions. Was this avoidable and then secondly do you see light at the end of the tunnel if this rights issue does go through for Tongat? Yeah I think how events have transpired it, it, it wasn't avoidable you know with land sales effectively drying up um, with them not being able to bring in equity on the sugar milling side what they called I think Milko and um, you know also with you know SA rating um, you know once this is cleared out yeah it will be interesting company to look at you know particularly as a play on South Africa I mean some things have started going their way you know the, the higher international sugar price for instance um, but it will still be a long haul and um, it will be interesting to see what the you know Magister Investments brings to the table. Uh, I'm sure they must have a plan here. Um, so yeah, it's, there's a lot that needs to be disclosed by Tongart. The last time we spoke, Tongart had appointed a new operational team due to mishaps that you mentioned earlier. Have they provided any clarity on operations or just how the performance of the core business is going at the moment? No, um, they did talk talk about it at the AGM um, you know and it sounded as if 
you know, they, they increase the pressure, certainly on the, the sugar side and the refining, and the assets were badly maintained, and the thing blew up. <laughs> so there's been no update. They, they say they're tending to all those things. Um, obviously, they're going to be results interims very soon. So, yeah. What are the consequences in this kind of situation to not follow your rights issue? Would you consider that or do you think that's just not an option whatsoever? Yeah, fortunately, I haven't been a shareholder for quite some time, but um, it could be an opportunity. Uh, you, you need to look at it because the rights issue will be positive in that it will take the financial risk out of this, this company. And, um, you know, I think the company then needs to provide shareholders with a lot of detail of, of the future, uh, you know, now that they've got a clean slate on debt. So, yeah, you, you know, particularly if the rights issue is pitched at a very low price, there could be quite a substantial rally, you know, once it's all settled. Uh, but ultimately, it will hinge on, you know, what the strategic plans are and how they can execute and unlock the value in the assets like land and sugar. And as you know, Zimbabwe, Mozambique, that's, there's always going to be guesswork around those assets. When are the next set of results, Chris, that we can sort of get better insight into all of the things that you've just mentioned? Well, it will be for the entrance to 30th of September. So my guess is there, there should be an announcement uh, pretty soon, you know. And, um, yeah, they, they were going well in the first half of last year. It was in the second half when they had all these mishaps around sugar. So it will be an interesting set of results. But uh, certainly, you know, there, there haven't been the class action lawsuits like Steinhoff and all the rest. In some way, it was deserved. Um, but it's just been a, a real nightmare <laughs> for anyone who got caught up in this. Well, one of the, what has got to be the biggest surveys on earth into the impact of COVID-19 in a very scientific manner has been done by our own very own discovery here in South Africa, whose uh, Discovery Health CEO, Ryan Noach, joins us now. Ryan, looking through it, has there actually been a survey or a, an investigation of this size anywhere in the world? Because the advantage, I guess, you have is you have uh, millions of Discovery clients, and as you go through the numbers, as I went through the, 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 the detail that you uh, provided, it does give you a huge data set from which to really unpack how COVID-19 uh, is, impacts us and indeed how the vaccines work. We wanted to claim, Alec, that it's the largest in the world, but, uh, you know, there's been, there's been multiple studies around vaccine effectiveness and safety, and so we didn't want to make that statement and find some study somewhere that's larger. So certainly one of the largest, a massive data set, quite a unique data set that combines wellness information, which is largely in this respect physical activity and body mass index, health information about when people get sick and what happens to them when they get sick, and vaccination information about which vaccine they've had and when. So there were a few things that uh, that emerged here. Uh, the one, uh, and I'm going to be very personal here, I've been vaccinated twice and I've had COVID, so I seem to be in that super group. Just tell me about that because I've, I guess there aren't too many of us uh, uh, in the population who've had that uh, circumstance, but uh, there's reason to be very happy if you've had the vaccines and you've, been, you've had COVID. Yeah, actually, I think there are a larger number than we believe because COVID-19 is often asymptomatic, the infection. Probably quite a large number of people who've had the infection have also been vaccinated. But, Alec, you're in a, a fortunate kind of group who uh, have now what the scientific community calls hybrid immunity. Um, and what hybrid immunity means is that you've developed antibodies following an infection of COVID-19, and so you've got immunity from an infection, and you've also boosted that immunity through vaccination. We have quite a large cohort of members in our data set that have that situation, 
And once you, you've done that, our data shows that you have a 98% lower risk of admission to hospital than somebody who is unvaccinated. 98% lower risk. So you're actually extremely well protected against the complications of COVID-19. And for those people who were not vaccinated but did have COVID-19, the risk is significantly uh, low, uh, sorry, significantly higher uh, than the, the value of having, in other words, getting the infection and getting vaccinated. What are the differences there? Uh, absolutely, Alec. Uh, the, the, the risk, once you've contracted COVID-19, your risk of being admitted to hospital unvaccinated is 86% lower than the rest of the population. Uh, but that's for a short period of time after the infection. Uh, what we do see in our data is that your chances of complications of COVID-19 after an infection increase as time goes by. And we've looked at that wave on wave. Uh, so that 86% drops to about 33% uh, the third wave on the first wave. So our first wave was early 2020. Our third wave was the middle of this year, 2021. And so over that period of more than a year, that 86% drops to about 33%. Um, so, uh, you know, the, it does wane over time. Just unpack, if you would, for a moment, how many people are in the data set? Because I, I can already hear some people saying, yes, but how do they know this? And he's just making it up. And, you know, what? how big is the data set that, uh, that your actuaries have been investigating? And indeed, how many actuaries have been working on this? <laughs> it's a very large team. Uh, we have, uh, we're the largest employer of actuaries, actually, in South Africa. Um, and so in our health informatics team, we have a team of about 30 actuaries, clinicians, and statisticians that spend all day, every day, just pouring over our data and understanding what we can learn from the data, not only vaccination data, all sorts of clinical data to improve the quality of care and the efficiency of care that our members receive. Uh, Alec, the database is, is large indeed. Uh, we have Two and a half million vaccine doses that have been administered to members uh, administered by Discovery Health, medical scheme members that have been administered. Uh, through those people, about 1.2 million um, adult members have been vaccinated. So we've got 1.2 million vaccinated, the balance of the adult members not vaccinated. And so the comparison of vaccinated against unvaccinated is a very large number of lives. And we looked at about 1.7 million data points uh, through these different population groups. So, uh, you know, this is a statistically relevant sample. Uh, it has not yet been peer reviewed. Uh, as you know, through the COVID-19 period, a lot of research has been published in what's called preprint uh, because of the urgency to get the data out there. Uh, we've had some external experts look at the work we've done, but it hasn't been formally peer-reviewed peer -reviewed and published yet. It is our intention to do that too. As far as uh, some people are concerned, the vaccines have got risk. Given that you've done so, you've got 1.2 million of your members who have been vaccinated. What risks emerged there? Surprisingly low risks, uh, extremely safe medication relative to many of the other medicines that we take regularly on a day-to-day -day basis as members of medical schemes, as South Africans like you and I, very, very low risks. Um, importantly, we haven't seen one single documented vaccine-related death in our data after two and a half million doses have been given to our members. Uh, we have seen that the three most common side effects after the administration of the vaccine are actually relatively manageable. Uh, we're discounting here the very mild side effects. So there are a proportion of people that land up with muscle pain, fatigue, a headache, perhaps a, a very short period of fever in the first couple of days after the, the vaccination. Discounting those and looking at severe, uh, more severe side effects, the three that popped out are uh, lymph adenopathy, which is just an enlargement of the lymph glands, a completely benign enlargement. That occurred 31 times out of every 100,000 doses administered. 
I mean, in percentage terms, that's 0.031%. So very low incidence. Uh, we saw myositis in some people, which is an inflammation of the muscles. Uh, like when you get flu, you get those very painful muscles for a period of time. We did see that as a complication. That happened in nine out of every 100,000 doses administered, or 0.009%. And then we saw a third condition called paresthesia, which is a tingling sensation, usually from irritation of a nerve. Uh, and we saw that in three out of every 100,000 doses, or 0.003% of all vaccinations. These were the only three side effects that were statistically relevant and, uh, you know, more severe than the very mild stuff that you hear about. Um, and in all cases that we could see, it resolved, easily treated and managed. I should just make the point uh, that all three of these conditions are known si uh, complications of COVID-19. You contract COVID-19. These three particular adverse events of happen as a complication of COVID-19. The incidence of them happening in COVID-19 itself with the disease is many-fold higher, 40-fold higher in the case of lymph lymphadenopathy than it is uh, following vaccination. So... The short answer is uh, that it's extremely safe, and the side effect profile that we saw is is really nothing to be terribly concerned about at all. So nobody's died of the 1.2 million people who've uh, been vaccinated, or no one's died from the vaccine. And then the second point is where there have been uh, knock-ons, they've actually been a lot lower than had the person got COVID anyway. So uh, those are those are uh, pretty compelling numbers. But there's still questions around myocarditis and particularly for uh, teenage males. And I know, uh, or reading yeah. through your detail, your information, you do you do point that out as well. That at the time that these that the research was done to the end of September, teenage males in South Africa weren't yet getting vaccinated. Is, by, by pointing that out, are you saying to us you, you're not sure yet uh, whether this myocarditis uh, issue that has been so well documented or, or certainly publicized around the world uh, is something that you don't fully understand, or we, we as a species don't fully understand yet? Yeah, I know. Uh, I think we do understand it, Alec, uh, but we're pointing it out in full transparency and disclosure. This report has been written you know, sharing all the data with absolutely nothing to hide. We, we closed the, the period of the research on the 23rd of September. We had to have an end date by which all the data was captured. By that time, as you correctly said earlier, none of the teenagers in the country were yet eligible for vaccination. So they simply, we don't have the data for vaccinated youngsters in our, in our data set. We do see from global data sets that myocarditis, particularly in young teenage males, is a, a complication of COVID-19 vaccination. The international data we've seen is that it occurs really, um, so it's a rare complication, though it does occur, um, and in uh, all the cases that we're aware of has been adequately treated. Um, myocarditis is also a complication of COVID-19. We have a member lying in an ICU, um, an eight-year-old child in an ICU in Johannesburg at the moment, who is in cardiac failure from severe myocarditis following a COVID-19 infection. So we have a child who's in ICU at the moment fighting for her life uh, with myocarditis from COVID-19. Again, uh, the data is showing that myocarditis is more common as a complication of the infection than it is as an adverse event of the vaccine. We can't comment on our own South African data yet because we just don't have that. Uh, in due course, maybe this time next year or hopefully sooner, we'll tell you about the data we've seen in the young members that are being vaccinated and we'll give a full disclosure about the myocarditis we're seeing there, if any. A couple of months ago, I had a fascinating interview with your colleague, uh, Emil Stipp, the chief actuary at Discovery, where he was comparing uh, in great detail the numbers that had come out from the NHS in the UK. Are your findings consistent with theirs? Completely consistent. Um, in fact, the consistency was something that we questioned ourselves about because it's unusual to see such high levels of consistency in research around population groups in different parts of the world. 
we often land up having to explain why data is slightly inconsistent because of different healthcare systems, different genetic pools, uh, you know, different environments. In, in this case, our data is entirely consistent, uh, almost to, you know, the second percentage point with a lot of the other data coming out from elsewhere in the world. The precision uh, associated with this research that we've done is very high. The methodologies are extremely robust. And I, I think it speaks to a very robust approach towards researching the vaccines by medicine regulators and other organizations like us all over the world. Um, and so we're coming out at statistically significant sample sizes with very similar data. Uh, I think if you look at some of the very small samples around the world, there's some variation in the data, but you should always rather compare big samples of data and then it's highly consistent. So the bringing it all together, and you've got some lovely numbers here, what is the lowering of the risk by having the second dose of the Pfizer vaccine, which I guess is, is the one that many of us in South Africa have had, on A, getting sick? It, it doesn't mean you've had two doses, you're not going to get sick, but actually getting COVID-19, and then getting sick enough to go into hospital and then uh, the ultimate of being uh, actually passing as a consequence of COVID-19 if you have been vaccinated twice. Yeah, that's the crux of the matter. And uh, you've left it to a good point in the conversation. Uh, I mean, the headline for, for, for consumers of healthcare is the following, is that you've got a five times higher risk of catching COVID-19 if you're unvaccinated. So, you know, you are five times more likely to contract it if you're unvaccinated and you are 20 times more likely to die if you do contract it. Uh, so for the unvaccinated who do land up with an infection, you're 20 times more likely to die from that uh, if you're unvaccinated. I should qualify that and say that your risk of dying is different at different age groups. Um, and so, you, you know, this is a relative comparison between people of your same age um, in, in that stat. Effectively, in percentage terms, if we put it in percentage terms, after 14, 14 days after you've had the second dose of the Pfizer vaccine, uh, you have a 92% lower risk of being admitted to hospital if you contract the disease and a 94% lower risk of dying. Um, this, these are outstanding uh, effectiveness statistics. It, it does mean the vaccine is fallible, Alex. Uh, so you will, Alex. So you will hear of occasions where fully vaccinated people have been admitted to hospital, and some have unfortunately demised. Indeed, it is not a hundred percent effective. But ninety-four uh, percent. If I got that on a maths test at school, I was pretty happy. It's a pretty good performance. I wish I'd even got close to that. But just take it one step further, because the thing that that uh, often confuses me is not long ago discovery was saying that a high percentage of south africans have probably had COVID 19 anyway so if you've already had it aren't you then also protected to a high degree against vaccines and i i, I say this because quite often when i bump into people and they say they haven't been vaccinated and i i wonder uh what is the motivation for that and uh, some of them say well most of us have had COVID-19. I never had any symptoms, but I probably had it, so I'm probably okay. Yeah, it's a good question, and it's a, it's a frequently asked question. Uh, two very clear answers for that. The data is unequivocal that being vaccinated gives you stronger immunity against COVID-19's complications particularly than the immunity that emerges from a natural infection. The second thing is where you started the interview speaking about your own personal situation Use the advantage you've got after having contracted COVID-19 and give yourself superpowers, this colloquial super immunity that's being spoken about, by getting vaccinated on top of that. And this creates what, in science, we talk about hybrid immunity, the best, the best protection you can get in today's world. Um, and so there's every reason to be vaccinated. We do believe a large proportion of the population have had infections. What we see around the world, though, is that there's a, a few months gap between waves, uh, that immunity from having infections in a previous wave wears off, and then another wave arrives and, uh, you know, infects a, a, a great deal of the population again. 
in our own data, we see about 12,000 members of ours that we've identified have had COVID-19 more than once, some of them even more than twice. So reinfections are indeed possible. Ryan, the other thorny issue is mandatory vaccines. Uh, I know at one point... Uh, Adrian Gore, your colleague, was saying that he wants everybody at Discovery to get vaccinated. There's been almost a kickback from uh, many people to say that uh, I don't. I want to have the right to make my own decision. I suppose in the same way as people believe, that, well, people do have the right to smoke themselves to death if they want to take cigarettes. Have you changed your view as a as a company on this? Definitely not, uh, Alec. If, if anything, our view is more resolute than ever. And I'm thrilled to tell you that as an organization, we are now 91% vaccinated. So of our almost 10,000 staff in South Africa, about 91% now have, have been vaccinated. The mandate has been highly effective in helping us to get everybody vaccinated. And we feel very proud that we've managed to protect the majority of our people uh, our deadline is 1 January 2022, by which our employees must be vaccinated. And we think that we'll still make big progress from this 91% point uh, before the 1st of January next year. The simple reason for it, Alec, is that we want our workplace to be safe. We are desperate to get our people back in the, in the workplace, in the offices. We, we've got an incredible culture here at Discovery. We, we really want to extend that and enjoy that, a sense of belonging and connectedness, teams sitting together and working together. But we're obliged as an employer to make sure we can do that safely. We have sadly lost 24 employees to COVID. These are extended members of our family that have died, including a 30-year-old and a 29-year-old in the last six weeks. Um, And we just don't want to lose another employee. You know, we have call center environments which represent a large portion of our workforce. And they, they, while they're socially distanced, they're in close enough proximity to potentially infect each other. They've been working at home, but we, we want to get them back in the workplace. We want to, you know, extend this culture of warmth inside our business. Uh, and the, the safest and best way to do it while protecting employees is to ensure everyone's vaccinated. Um, you've got to do it in addition to the other measures. We continue to ensure that people wear masks in our workplace. We've socially distanced. We've re-spaced out our offices. We're in the process of putting up perspex screens between people's work pl- uh, workplaces and so on. So it's in combination with other mitigation measures. Adopting, you know, what the World Health Organization refers to as a Swiss cheese model of protection, you know, where you put multiple layers of protection in place. And and I guess the other question is uh, people who are not vaccinated, who decide for their own reasons they don't want to be vaccinated, are they a danger to those who have been? They are 50 to 76 percent more likely to spread COVID-19. That's supported by the data. There's two reasons for that. Reason number one is they are five times more likely to contract an infection. And reason number two is that there's quite good data emerging now that shows that the the amount of virus in the blood of somebody who's unvaccinated on average tends to be higher than in vaccinated cohorts. So not true for every patient, but on average it's true. And so as a result, they're more likely to spread it. We, We want to adopt every measure possible. And our own data shows that vaccination is completely safe. So, you know, considering that it's safe, the risk-benefit equation is, is unquestionable. We, it's a very unusual position for us to take as an organization. We are not a paternalistic organization. We are not a culture of thou must. We are a meritocracy where debate and discussion and consensus actually wins the day. But it's a matter of life and death. Um, and we think there is a, a moral imperative on business leaders uh, to, to set examples in this space, absolutely. So, you know, while personal choice is critically important, where it can cause harm to others, to other third parties, 
then perhaps the public good is more important. Um, and in this situation, we think it's a good example of it. You know, I would love to drive on the right-hand side of the road. I prefer driving on the right-hand side of the road, actually, Alec. <laughs> but if I did that on our highways, I would cause terrible accidents. I would, uh, you know, and, and I would be injuring people. So one has to uh, conform to the public good. I also, Alec, am a nudist, and I would prefer not to be wearing clothes every day. <laughs> but, you know, uh, the public good determines that that would offend a lot of people. And, and I, I mean, I think it is as fundamental as those things. So let me just really understand this. If you're unvaccinated, you've got a five times higher chance of contracting COVID-19. The chances of contracting it and then passing it on means that although your colleagues have been vaccinated, there is still a chance, and uh, as you've said, uh, in your, as your data shows, uh, there's a 94% reduction in your risk if you've been vaccinated, but there's still 6% chance of you dying. So is that the, the, the thought process? If we have unvaccinated people around here, there's a higher chance that they're going to contract and pass on COVID-19 to those who are vaccinated who would then have clearly a higher chance of dying. Yes, I think you've captured it well. That's the individual motivation. There's a societal or population level motivation as well. The epidemiologists show that in uh, where you have a large group of people, a big population that is vaccinated, you can contain epidemic surges or what we've come to know, know as waves of, of the epidemic. Um, so the disease will be endemic. It will be there all the time in the background underlying like influenza is. But you can ensure that you don't have these waves of disease if you have a large level of population immunity. And so, you know, the societal answer to your question, or you summed up the individual version correctly, is that we've got to try as hard as we can to lead, to demonstrate leadership and to encourage everyone around the moral imperative of getting as many people vaccinated as possible. Our president and Department of Health set a target of 70 percent by year end. We've seen demand drop off, unfortunately. We're not going to make that target. Our projections are that we'll end the year at about 51-52% of the population vaccinated. Um, it's not high enough, uh, and I think it puts us at risk of a fourth wave, which we think will, will materialize. If more people are not vaccinated. If, let's say, we did get to that 70% target, would that eliminate the possibility of a fourth wave and further lockdowns and those kind of economic yeah, damaging I, issues? I, our actuaries have built a mathematical model about that. We think we'd still have a fourth wave, but importantly, we, we, we've been able to draw a direct line between the number of vaccinated people and the number of deaths. We think we could save 25,000 people from dying if we achieved 70% vaccination by the end of the year. It saves 25,000 lives. When I was a young doctor and, you know, one was able to intervene and perhaps save one life, you thought this is the meaning of my career. This is what I stand for. It's an, it's an unbelievable feat. I mean, here as a society, we just have to take some leadership and we can save 25,000 lives of people around us. Um, and that would be, that would be just a, an, an amazing thing to do for the country. So, uh, and, you know, in the UK context, where they've completely opened up and they've dropped most of the mitigation strategies, um, for better or for worse, quite a bold set of steps that they've taken. They do have higher vaccination levels. Our actuaries in our, in our UK team show how many tens of thousands of lives have been saved in the United Kingdom because the mitigation measures are all gone, but just because they're vaccinated. Um, it's astounding. So here's an opportunity to make a difference to families. And there are enough vaccines to go around in South Africa? Uh, there's more than enough. Our country has secured enough stock to vaccinate all the adults in our country. And with the demand having tailed off, we're actually sitting on excess supply at the moment. So, um, you know, unlike the rest of Africa, sadly, our country is in a very strong position. We have uh, excellent supply. And, uh, you know, I think some credit is due there to the Department of Health and their procurement and distribution process behind this mass vaccination campaign. And our current acting director general has been personally, you know, working very hard behind the scenes to drive this out. And in the credit is due to, to some of the organizations in the country, like Aspen, who are the single largest manufacturer of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine in the world, 
running, I think, by Johnson & Johnson's own admission, the most successful, you know, filling uh, vaccination filling plant in, in the world and producing tens, if not hundreds of millions of vials of the vaccine, uh, some of which are staying in our country. So uh, we've got a lot to be thankful for from a supply perspective. You're listening to the Biz News Power Hour brought to you by the team at biznews.com. Well, thanks so much for being with us today. We'll be back again same time, same place tomorrow for your hour of power. Until then, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour brought to you by the team at Biz News.